Hi guys, welcome to the Business Over Chai podcast. I'm Andy, uh, one of the co-hosts along with Sunny, and uh, just want to quickly shout out and say thank you to those who have supported this podcast and through our whole journey. We finally have uh, some videos, so if you're watching on YouTube or Spotify, you'll actually get to see the more visual aspects of the interviews that we take that take place on the podcast. Today we have Ishveen Jolly, who is the founder and CEO of Open Sponsorship. Open Sponsorship is the largest global two-sided marketplace for sponsorships, connecting brands with athletes, teams and events. Some of the notable investors for open sponsorship include tennis superstar Serena Williams and also Crystal Palace's co-owner David Blitzer. So without further ado, check out the episode. Ishreen, thank you so much for taking the time to join our show today. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Just to kick off, would you like to introduce your business, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm the CEO and co-founder of Open Sponsorship. We are the largest marketplace um, connecting brands to professional athletes predominantly, but also teams and events in the sponsorship field, so for kind of marketing. Um, and our mission really is all around um, bringing accessibility, transparency to the $60 billion sponsorship industry, which is awesome and an industry I love, but has been pretty archaic to date. Wow, $60 billion. Okay, so it sounds like you know a little bit about this industry. Could you kind of, you know, let's just go back to the beginning of, you know, your early life. What did that look like where you were raised, uh, schooling, family? That'd be great. Yeah, awesome. So um, I was born in Sheffield, um, but I am a Lancashire girl. I moved to Manchester when I was like one <laughs> um, and was there till 18. Um, loved growing up in Manchester. I essentially played sports. Like that's what I was like, that was my brand. That's all I kind of did was like play sports, go to Gudvara every now and again, and like hang out with the family. Like those were my three and study. Um, <laughs> so kind of grew up in Manchester and then I'm very fortunate I got into Oxford to study economics and management. But again, you know, studied, partied, but really like sports was my, my thing. Loved it. I credit it to most of like my best friends that I've made. Um, and so, yeah, I suppose I could start there. That kind of took me up to the age of whatever, 21. Um, but yeah. What, what kind of sports were you doing? So netball um, was my primary winter sport. And then rounders when we were really young and then cricket as I kind of grew up. Um, but honestly, you, you know, if I, I was like prop at tennis, but like if, if there was someone who <laughs> needed a, a spare player, I'm like there. Like anyone that needed like football, I'd be like, yeah, sure. I don't, I'm not very good at kicking a ball, but I'll run around and make some noise. So yeah, any sports. You're always up for the challenge. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And then I guess moving on to kind of your early career. So what did you do after uh, Oxford? Yeah, so, you know, Oxford, like many universities, is not the best. Well, they weren't at the de um, in those times of career advice. So it was accounting, consulting, banking, law. Um, so I, I chose consulting um, and worked for an awesome company called Javelin Group. So doing retail consulting, loved it. For a few years, absolutely loved it, loved my team, but I knew that my heartstrings were kind of pulling on me to, to be in the sports world. And so I remember I even took a week off work and did a sports coaching class, which now you're like, holidays are so valuable. And I literally spent it in like North London in a like a school gym, learning how to coach. It was it, like the writing was on the wall that I wanted to be in the sports industry. I just, I suppose I never really thought that you could work in sports. Um, and so it took me a good few years to figure out that actually this is a career that one could pursue. Let's just talk about Javelin. What were you doing there? You said consulting. It's a very vague and broad uh, mm -hmm. term. What, what were you advising on? Yeah. So 
Javelin um, is was Europe's leading retail consulting shop. Um, actually, so back up, I interned at Ernst & Young, and I know we discussed this, and um, I very quickly decided that I did not want to work at a big company. You know, it was an amazing experience. As an intern, they kind of, they're so lavishly, their expenses at you and they take you out and, and they, you know, it's great training and awesome people. But I just remember thinking, gosh, like, how am I going to make a difference? And I, I didn't really know what that meant to me, but I remember thinking, this is not my home, like being one of a thousand people, even though the, the building's great and the canteen is awesome and all of that, <laughs> like, perks are great. Um, and so loved Javelin because they were very boutique. Um, really working with great people. And my department was locations and shopping centers. So we essentially would help like new look on their, their location strategy. Like where are mm. their stores? Are they in the high street? Are they doing well? What's the competitor matrix? Um, you know, what are your adja adjacencies? And um, I've actually not been, but I worked on in 2008, the plan for the Wembley shopping center, which I now believe is like built and functional. Um, but we were talking wow. about who the anchor should be and what the store mix should be and the retail mix versus like FMB versus entertainment. So it, it was all fascinating um, stuff. Great. Fantastic. So now you've got this sudden urge or this um, kind of pull towards going back to sports or going into sports. Um, what happened next then? Yeah. So I was really fortunate, like a friend of mine um, was like, well, I know this guy who works in India and um, has a sports agency, you know, what do you think? And I had, I had already been planting the seeds of like moving to India and, and that was like super left field as well. Um, I like, absolutely hated going to India as a child. Like every two, three years, like my parents would drag me there and I couldn't wear what I wanted to wear and like I'd fall ill and... You, know, you couldn't go outside without someone chaperoning you as a girl. Like I, I just didn't enjoy it. And then I didn't. I went when I was maybe at university. I don't really remember the moment, but suddenly I thought, "Gosh, what an amazing place!" And as long as you can accept that it's different and there's poverty, but like, of course, you want to eradicate it. But everyone is everyone's doing okay. Um, mm. And as long as you can accept what it is, it's, actually, it's such an amazing place. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do one crazy thing, why not do two? So I decided I wanted to move to India to join a sports agency, which obviously did not go down well with my parents. Um, so it did take me a bit of time to convince them, but um, in the end, they allowed it, I suppose. And off I went. So you just packed your bags and said, I'm going to India for this, this role. Where, where was the role? What were you doing in this, uh, this, this job and this agency? Yeah. So I literally packed my bags, landed and went straight to the office day one. Cause obviously I had nothing else kind of better to do. Um, <laughs> and I've got like family in India, but like not like extended family or like my grandparents from Bhopal. And so the job was based in Delhi and the office was in Delhi and essentially it was, um, it was a sports and, entertainment agency so they had like fashion india fashion week was a client of theirs and they would sell all the sponsorship and then activate the sponsorship and i was coming in to work on the sports business and so i land in delhi and my first week i'm like kind of absorbing learning and it's india fashion week which was just crazy i went from like being a management consultant in london wearing suits and working on microsoft access to being like involved in like fashion shows in delhi <laughs> which like so bizarre and then about two weeks later, I went to Mumbai because my first, the, the prime, my primary client, um, my first primary client was Mumbai Indians. And so essentially I was involved in selling their sponsorship assets. Wow. Okay. 
And uh, what year was this roughly? Because um, did you notice any kind of like culture differences or working practices differences between the UK and, and India? Any. I mean, what, what wasn't different? Like, so this was 2009, um, which is interesting because when I went to India, a lot of people were like, are you crazy? You're moving to India. And when I moved back from India, which was like 2011, people were like, are you crazy? India's so cool. And it was just like, in that period, was like, everything switched. I don't, I don't know how. Um, but yeah, it was loads of things. Like, obviously your meetings, right? Like, the way that meetings happen there is let's sit down, let's talk about your family, my family, let's talk about what we watch on TV, let's talk about world <laughs> economics. And then maybe for five minutes at the end, we'll talk about like work, if, if that at all, right? <laughs> and so that's why, you know, I remember this this guy I know said, I, I basically sit in meetings from nine to like 8 p.m. and then I work, for, like, which is why they work so insane hours. So um, obviously being a woman was very interesting um, working in India, um, primarily because as a management consultant, you, you, you know, um, you're in VC, you're in like data product, like no one really asks, well, what's your background? Because you've, you've basically earned your right in the room just by that job. Mm. When you work in sports, like a lot of people think that you're not like that smart or, you know, whatever else, like you don't like, so it was very, I've never, I, I learned to validate myself a lot. So I've never mm. had to drop the Oxford brand as much as I had to in that first year of living in India, because otherwise I, I people thought I was like a secretary. Wow. That's interesting. So, I mean, there's some pre preconceived notions of, you know, being in, in the industry specifically, um, how, uh, how did that conversation go about? Like, did you, did you, did you feel like people were looking down at you for being in that industry and that it was that specific to your time in India or did that feel different when you were in the UK? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I do think like, I think today there is so much more of an acceptance of like different roles. Like if you work in marketing, you're like, oh, that's cool. But like, especially like back then it was, you know, you're a lawyer. And India as well, right? Like you're in marketing and you're in sports marketing. Like it's not that serious kind of thing. Um, and so, whereas today I think the sports business is taken very seriously. So I think mm. today everything is just on a level plate. Like no longer today, you know, like, we, we joke about Soho House not allowing in like finance people, but like the point being is like, there's been a lot of like, <laughs> or, or social media or influencers or whatever else. Like, I think there's been a lot of like, the creative world is now as cool or as revered, if not more than banking, law, like these kind of industries. But back then it was like the opposite. Yeah, right. I totally agree. Yeah, so you mentioned you came back to UK in 2011 then. So uh, what made you came back then? What drove that decision? Yeah, I, lo I like loved my time in India. So I, I basically worked on Mumbai Indians for like four months of the year. Mm. sponsorship activation the tournament and then about six months of the year i would do um hero so formerly hero honda now hero motor Corp, the largest two-wheeler manufacturer in the world like all of their sponsorship and so it was i mean it was so amazing experience like i got to travel all over the world and like work on these amazing cricket tournaments and like be the envy of all my friends and stuff and it was just and the learning was amazing but it got quite um samey right so two mm. things happened one was i I wasn't really growing professionally anymore. And the second was when you live in India, like your professionalism does get shot a little bit, right? Like you turn up late and it's okay. People keep you waiting and it's okay. Like, you know, it was, I just thought 
And, and I was striving for like innovation, which we'll, we'll get to. And I, I wasn't really getting that there. Like no one was wanting to do new things, which is kind of what I was interested in. Wow. Interested. Okay. No, and no, I got it. Okay. Um, so, uh, so what did you do when you, when you came over here then? Uh, did you have a role lined up or were you kind of saying, well, let's just go back and, and see what, what's next in store for me? Yeah. So I, I had a, um, a role that was like, um, kind of a consulting role with a merchandise company, which like helping them with it in the strategy. So it was great. It obviously, like it played the bills. It was interesting. Um, but I was really interested in cross-border. And so when you think about the sports industry, there's essentially two two ways to make money outside of America and three in America. So um, you've got sponsorship and then you've got media, right? So mm-hmm. you know, football selling its rights to Sky and then everyone else like globally. Um, and then in, in America, you've got ticket sales as a huge revenue earner, which in England you, you have, but it's not as big. And sure. so when you think about media, like the global media industry is huge, right? Like the NBA, how much is that contract worth out of China and the Philippines and whatever else? Whereas sponsorship was fairly like localized. And that, you know, I would always say like, uh, I'm a Man United fan, but Man United were doing it great. Like they had, at that time, I think they had like 21 telecom partners. I mean, they had a telecom partner in yeah. Afghanistan, right? Um, but no one else had really figured out like the commercial strategy internationally. And so, you know, even working with Mumbai Indians, IPL is huge here, but they didn't Mm. have like a UK sponsor, right? And that Mm. didn't really make sense to me. And so I I kind of kept pitching to people, like my old boss, like I kept pitching this idea to agencies and, you know, fair point, they were like, nope, either work in England or work in India, like there's no cross-border stuff going on here. And so essentially I set up my own agency, um, Autos to do cross-border deals. So you did, you're doing cross-border deals. It sounds like it wasn't really an established sort of market, at least in the eyes of the, uh, in India, but it was really something that had already been built out or was still growing in, in the UK or in the Western world. Not really. I think it was just really before my time, like a bit silly, but I, like. I, okay. So there was nothing around that no, was no really one, doing cross-border. No one was really doing anything with it. And I'll give you an example. So I was at working on a golf tournament and you've got this, um, you get marquee players, right? And so they're paid to come and play in the tournament. So the Indian Open is on and this guy comes over from the UK and he's paid like $30,000 to play in the tournament, right? And he's a marquee name and it attracts eyeballs and whatever else. And I was talking to him and he was saying how he would love to have got some sponsors while he was in India, maybe do a couple of events, like you know, golf yeah. day. And he was like, my agent is like my best friend from home, has no no connection to India. Obviously I can't get sponsorship. And then when you think about the tour, you know, the PGA tour, like you, you're in Dubai, you're in China, you're in Taiwan, you're in Korea. So your sponsorship is so limited by the network that you're, so there was like all of these things that were telling me like, wait, why is someone not getting you sponsorship? Like in India, but no one was doing it essentially. Right. Right. And so that kind of, you set up this industry, sorry, agency, uh, and now you're, you know, building out this sort of cross border, cross border product or service. Um, is this kind of the beginning of open sponsorship now that we're leading into? Is this where you thought, okay, this is a real business. And I mean, Go, before we go into that, like this was a quite a big leap because you've gone from like a very, I would say, you know, you've, you've got a pretty good um, uh, set of like accolades behind you. You've, you know, 
went to Oxford, you, you, you know, raised in a really, sounds like a, you know, really, um, uh, progressive and, um, you know, striving family that want you to do really well. And then moved to India, you did all this. It sounds really great, but then you've kind of dropped everything. You've, you know, you've got these awesome jobs and then you moved to England and you've just quit and said, I'm going to start this up. That's a massive risk. Like, how did you just come about that? And, you know, that must have felt like, pretty heavy to do. Uh, when you put it like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Like, oh, it's huge, right? I mean. <laughs> I've done that. <laughs> unless I'm making that up, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was like, work, like, I was working from home before work from home was even a thing at that, that, yeah. that year. Like, I was like, in my cousin's, um, like, essentially kid's bedroom, like, trying to, like, learn how to code a site and, like, build a homepage and stuff. So, yeah, it was, I imagine it was pretty brutal, but I don't, um, I suppose my personality, I, I don't really think, um, when I want to, it's like, I, I didn't, literally you're the first person that's ever said it like that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it was pretty stupid. <laughs> um, but it felt right at the time. Yeah. So you, I mean, it, 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 it sounds like hunky dory of a story, but like, I'm, I'm sure there were some challenges along the way. I mean, what, what are some of the, I don't know, horror stories or some of the crazy <laughs> stories that you experienced in that, you know, first phase of really, um, early stage of, of setting up? Um, so I think you, it is obviously scary when you don't have like an income, and you've gone from having a job and then you don't um so like if i look back i think it was actually pretty stupid to be honest um I was quite young um to be doing that but i just i suppose once you once you realize that you're not happy in a role um and that you want to do something else like you have two types of people people who stay in it and then kind of complain um and are constantly looking for jobs, but I never make the move. And then there's people who just like do it. And so I suppose I was so focused on the mission and I did believe that. And luckily like here my client was, you know, uh, engaging me for certain things. And I picked up like a gig, like working with Tottenham Hotspur to, on their India strategy. So I suppose like I had a few key clients, but I just, I really believed in the idea that sponsorship should be um, accessible globally. Mm. Um, and so I really, I don't, yeah, I don't really feel about it. Yeah, because you, you've gone into a space that you just you kind of said is a space that wasn't didn't really exist before this cross border yeah. sort of, um, you know, structure of, uh, you know, serving that sort of market that really didn't exist. And so I'm just sat here thinking, wow, that's like a massive risk. Um, you're going like you can go into existing markets or you can create a market. And so I think that's even more of a risk when you're trying to go into a market that hasn't really matured or established yet. I don't know if you agree with that, but, um, that's, that's... you know, the thing is like when you, when I, when I did my first move from, um, London to India when I was like 24, I, I suppose like that in itself was a risk, like, you know, obviously took a massive pay cut, like have no idea if it's going to work out. My parents joked that they had like bets on that I'd be home within a month. And then when <laughs> I didn't, they were like, oh, she's only staying out because we like, <laughs> she, she made that decision kind of thing. So I think um, you, you get used to being in like uncomfortable situations and just dealing with it. Um, you know, I, mean, I think we talked a little bit, like when I moved to India, like, within the first three months, the whole IPL moved to South Africa. And like, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it was amazing, but I'm now on a plane with the whole of like Mumbai Indians as, as quite a young person, like trying to figure this stuff out. And so 
I suppose you just maybe your personality type is like sink or swim, and so you just you just go for it. Great. So so let's get into open sponsorship, then, Ishreen. Um, can you talk us through what your business model is, um, what you're kind of trying to achieve there, and I guess quite importantly, how you generate revenue? Yeah. Um, so following on from this, I suppose is the the fact that like as I'm trying to do these cross-border stuff for like these quite complicated deals, I'm using LinkedIn professionally and then in my personal mm. life, I'm like using Airbnb and Uber. And I was just like, one day I was like, why is there not a, like, why is it not a marketplace for, why is it not an Airbnb for open sponsorship, for the sponsorship industry? Somewhere you can just like buy and sell rights like online. And so it's obviously evolved over time. That was like seven years ago, but it's evolved, but essentially you, you have brands on one side and then you have athletes on the other. We have 12,000 athletes and about 70, 60, 70% are managed by agents. And that mm -hmm. surprises a lot of people because they're like, why would the big CAAs or, you know, octagons of the world use you? Well, they're really good at selling their top guy, but they're not great at selling everyone else. And I, I liken us a lot to recruitment, real estate, uh, maybe even dating or something like that, where, you know, it's, the recruitment's a great example. Like the top 1% of executives are only headhunted, right? Like they're not applying through LinkedIn, but the mass market doesn't have access to a headhunter and needs the mm -hmm. exposure of like job boards. And can you imagine like what it must've been like applying to jobs or finding people pre-job boards? Um, mm -hmm. And so like, that's our industry. And so we essentially created this platform that helps you with the match, the contracts, the payments, deal management, all of it. We charge our brands a subscription and membership um, and then we take a commission from the athlete side. So it's free for them to sign up and we basically only make money when, when they make money. Great. Okay. That's, re that's really, that's really interesting actually. Okay. And then I guess, how do you attract, um, athletes in the first place? I mean, you've talked about how, um, you know, the, the top, the top sports people in, in the world, you know, quite easy for them to perhaps secure deals, but then, uh, looking, going down the market, how, how do you attract those in the first place? And then having said that, um, last time we spoke, you did mention you have worked with a few kind of tops, uh, kind of celebrities or athletes out there. So perhaps, um, talk us through a few of those as well, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when it comes to like creating, um, product it's a lot of it is down to pricing right and the business model and does it make sense and so we and we we toyed with it a lot i remember when i first launched open sponsorship i was so obsessed with airbnb i was like right everything's free and we're just going to charge three percent commission and then i was like okay this is not going to work and for many reasons and so that's why we put like a paywall on the brand side when it came to the athlete side it just made a lot of sense to allow them to sign up for free and so mm. a it's very low risk Two is getting your first hundred is difficult, right? And so, um, and bearing in mind, we weren't just athletes and, and we're kind of going back to it, but I want to do team deals. We just did a deal for Fulham Football Club. Um, we want to do like event deals. We just did a, like some deals for the Super Bowl, like Sports Illustrated wow. Party. And so essentially, we just convinced people to sign up and we were like, you know, you're, you're probably not going to hear from us for six months while we figure out what the hell we're doing, but please sign up to this platform. And, um, <laughs> and they did. And then it just kind of grew from there, but the business model makes sense. It's like, literally it's a no brainer. And back in the day, you may have got resistance of like, I don't want my athletes to be listed on the platform. Like I don't want you to put pricing mm. up there. But the point being is a, now that we have so many deals, it's like, well, you're the fool if you don't sign up. Um, and B, like platforms like Cameo or influencer marketplaces, they've really normalized 
even Facebook, right? Like Instagram, mm -hmm. you can find any celebrity on Instagram. Now, is this price up there? No, but like their emails often up there or you can DM them, they, they probably won't respond. So I think a lot of this, the, the tools out there have, have kind of normalized this like, well, your athlete is accessible and available anyway. So, so tell us some of the cool athletes, the famous ones that you've worked with. Yeah. Um, so in, um, we're, we're mostly America based. So I'd say like my favorites in, um, football is probably, uh, Rob Gronkowski. Um, he's pretty big and we just did stuff for warm up with Justin Tucker, a guy called RG3, who used to be a huge college player. Um, in basketball, we've done stuff for Draymond Green, which was quite cool. Mm. And it was quite early on. Um, Baron Davis, and he's one of our investors, um, former NBA All-Star. Um, who else have we done stuff for in there? Golf, Jason Day, um, probably my, one of my favorites. And then quite a lot of female golfers. Um, um, what's his name? Hedrick Harrington. Um, yeah. Um, Tiger Woods' foundation we did deals for with Tito's Vodka. That was a really sick deal that we did. Um, wow, awesome. Tennis, Venus Williams, we just did a deal for with Stitch Fix. I've heard of her, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that was pretty cool. Um, and then soccer, um, we just did something with Jack Harrison, who plays for the Leeds. Um, okay. I think we've done stuff for Virgil van Dijk. I forget. It's... Um, Louis Nanny, if you remember him. Okay, so so the list goes on. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now you're just showing. No, I'm not sure. it's, it's it's really no, it's really impressive to to say that you've worked with those people, those those, those celebrity sports figures for sure. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it must have taken um, quite a period of time to get to where you are now. I mean, what's the kind of uh, like usage of, of like deals that you're flowing or how, how do you, how do you, how do you measure that today? Yeah. Uh, good question. I'd say we, we optimize for revenue versus like quantity, obviously quantity equals revenue as well. Um, but I'd say over the last few years, the biggest thing is that we've gone upstream working with bigger brands and doing bigger deals, which is obviously awesome. Um, we do maybe like two to 400 deals a month. Um, we have a lot of brands. I mean, for us at the moment, like, you know, if anyone wants to solve this for us, most welcome. But like, for us, like, we get a lot of brands and athletes coming in, but our biggest thing is engagement. And like, how do we create deals between the two? Um, so we're actually just about to hire a product manager to help us out with this. But the, the, the hardest thing is like, when you go into a recruitment platform, you're kind of, it's high intent and you're like, all right, I know that I want to hire a data analyst. Like, let me look for them, let me interview them. When you come into a platform like ours, you know, any brand out there, like a CPG, DTC, any sort of brand, that's like our, our, our sweet spot, or like you're an NFT brand or a crypto brand, you come in, you first have to figure out like, what's the athlete I want to use? Then it's like, what do I do with them? How much do I pay them? Is it going to produce results? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of like things that we have to answer before they actually do the deal. And, and that, that for us is like the hardest thing, which is, um, I think we talked about this, which is why we've actually, we're growing our account management, like client services aspect of our business. Um, when we first started, I was like, we're a platform, like as low, like low touch and like, it's a tool. Yeah. And then over time I've realized that actually you do need to provide services and you might need to do more handholding than you'd like, but it does lead to landing bigger clients and bigger deals essentially.
Yeah, no, it's great to say that, you know, you're a SaaS platform, self-serve, great, fantastic. You know, we didn't need to do anything. But, um, but yeah, if you're adding value, I think there is something to be said for kind of managed services or accounts, account management, as you say. So that's really interesting. So so it's a great day in the office, um, Ishmeen, when you sign a deal with Venus Williams. But I'm guessing you have some challenges some days as well. Can you talk us through some of the challenges you face, um, you know, in your kind of everyday lives? And perhaps how those challenges have evolved um, as you've grown bigger and um, perhaps uh, got friendly as well? Yeah, um, I think for me, the number one challenge is um, hiring and retention um, people. I would say, bearing in mind that like 90% of our like team is in the US, mm. it's, a, um, it's a high turnover market um, and especially in positions like sales. Um, so, you know, and COVID has been really interesting. It's allowed us to, so we were all New York based. We had an office out there and then um, COVID hit. I moved to London. We started hiring remote. And it's, it is so easy for people who are remote, especially like you have a bad day, you don't crush your numbers, let me start applying to jobs, right? Whereas like when you're in an office, you're like, well, I'll do it tomorrow because today I'm in the office <laughs> kind of thing. Or, you know, like someone's around me. So I'd say, I think, turnover, retention, and then as you scale processes, which kind of all go hand in hand. So we recently hired our first HR person. Um, we now have like managers of people, right? And so it's like, you know, it's, I myself, um, people may leave not because of me, it might be because of a relationship with a manager. And that's, that's really interesting, right? Because of the dynamics mm. in play. And so, um, I think people processes, um, are, are like one, like probably take up 50% of my challenge mindset. And then I'd say the other 30% would be focus. Like I'll be doing the right things. Um, we just launched the UK office. We have a head of UK now and you know, he's building his team, um, constantly getting emails from people in like Australia or Brazil being like, Hey, when are you coming here? Or, so like, what do we do with our international strategy? And should we add music? Um, because it's very complimentary. And so I think focus and knowing where you should be going in your roadmap is like a big headache because you get it wrong, you're screwed, you, you do it wrong, like you, you don't do it, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so I'd say that's 30%. Um, and then I don't know what the other 20%, other random problems that come up every day. <laughs> <laughs> Just the craziness of running a business. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you've... Um, getting access to kind of these cool folks, uh, celebrities, and then also businesses. What, what are some of the cool events that you've been to? <laughs> so I just came Most up... memorable. Uh-huh. Oh, I just came out from Super Bowl. Um, so that was pretty epic. Nice. And then the weekend after that, I was at All Star, so not to make everyone jealous. <laughs> so was uh, it nice? Was it cool seeing 50 Cent upside down? Or did you think <laughs> that was uh, just something strange? To be honest, I just wanted to see more Eminem and more Mary J. Blige. So, you okay. know, I think like the problem with having five people with over 15 minutes is yeah. you're just like, you know, I'm like such a big Eminem fan that I was like, why has he done one song? And like, you know, <laughs> so um, it was, it was cool. Two years ago, I was at the Super Bowl where they had Shakira and JLo and that was amazing. Actually far better for me. Um, so that the stakes quite high, I suppose. Wow. Well, the bar's quite high, but yeah, no, I'm so lucky. Like I do get to go to a lot of events. I do have to say it, it is still work, right? So you're, <laughs> you're kind of on, but I mean, no complaints. 
<laughs> Fantastic. That sounds great. Um, just thinking about, so obviously you had this great idea, but um, coming with a kind of economics and management background, um, how difficult was it for you to kind of set up the platform, you know, in terms of technical skills? You know, how did you have the skills or, or how, how did you go about solving that problem? Yeah, um, no, it did not. Um, I found a technical co-founder, but it took me a couple of iterations to find the right person. Um, I think it's like mm. one of the hardest things for most people is... Um, finding that technical person, right? Um, and sure. so, but what I would say is I was really up on product. So I was using Balsamic, which I don't even know if it's around anymore, but I was using like Balsamic to wireframe the site. I was spending a lot of time on like Airbnb and like other marketplaces, like looking at functionality. And so I think it's okay to be a non-technical co-founder, CEO and not build but you've got to be in the weeds with the product because at that like no one else is going to do that because you know the business logic as well. Um, sure. And so, yeah, I spent a, a long time and, and I've loved like working on product. And I think it really brings my co-founder and I close because, you know, if he was coming up with the idea and building it, then what the hell am I doing? Like just selling it. Um, so, yeah. That's fair. Yeah, I mean, it's always a t difficult, you said you went through a couple of iterations um finding uh, a co-founder i think like you see dragon's den now and stephen bartlett you know interview uh, is talking um and responding to a pitch and the the person in front is uh is they own a tech platform and then he's like where the heck is your cto mm. um like you need to bring the cto because that person is so crucial to your the organization or the platform that you're trying to build um I, you know, just kind of double clicking into that a little bit. I mean, what, what was the challenges that you discovered, which kind of brought you to the point of like going through several iterations? What were some of the key things there? Yeah, I would say one is when most people, one of the hardest things about being a entrepreneur and growing into like a CEO role is Usually when you hire, right? So now let's say, Anna, you get promoted and you hire someone junior to you, but you have done their job. So you know what you're looking for, right? You know what good looks like. When you're hiring for a role that you've never done, like we just hired for HR, I've never really done HR. Like I know the kind of things I want to solve, but really like data analysts, I don't even know how to use Tableau, right? But like I'm having to, um, or obviously like, and, and your technical co-founder, you actually have no idea if they're good or not. Yeah. Like, and they're like, we're going to build this in JavaScript versus, you know, React. Okay. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, <laughs> you know, we're going to, like, we should uh, use AWS. Okay. Like, you know, so it's, it's, you have, like, you literally have no idea if they're good or not. And so you know, the first engineer, um, I'm sure they were all good engineers, but then, then there's also like personality type. And yep. then, mm. It's also like, there are a lot of engineers and rightly so who they want to keep building their own projects on the side. So, you know, uh, the second guy we had, like he wanted to keep doing his own projects. Now being a part of a tech startup, if you're trying to grow, like hopefully as big as we grow, that's a full-time job. Like we get, I get asked this often in interviews, which is, can I, are you okay with me doing something else in the evening? And I'm always like, I personally think that you, you need to switch off in your evenings and weekends. Like mm. if you're doing another job, even if it's your passion, I mean, it's very different if it's like, I make like plants and sell plants and that's like, it, it relaxes me or I like sell golf sticks and it's like 
really like my passion. But if you're like working on another tech project in the evening, no way you're coming to work in the morning with us and feeling refreshed in, in yeah. my opinion i think might be a controversial viewpoint so i think it's about finding someone who like culturally fits who's actually good good at the job and can think like holistically so you need someone who can manage people over time right um it's gosh it's um if you find a good tech co-founder you're lucky i think i'm just really lucky that's fair that's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned a few times about hiring and, you know, how people management is quite important. So how big have you grown to now? I think we're 22. Right. Okay. And then they're based across uh, London and New York at the moment. So we have two people in London and then everyone else and myself here, but everyone else is in New York, uh, sorry, in um, America. We try and do East Coast time. So regardless of where you are, Denver, California, do East Coast time. Um, and the team is four in terms of engineering and then like data, ops, HR, um, content, and then the rest is like AMs and AEs, like sales side. And I guess one of the things you touched upon earlier was how you might be thinking about music, moving into music, maybe. Um, apart from that, what are the other kind of plans you have in store uh, for kind of open sponsorship? What would you what would you like to see, like, kind of be the, the end goal? Yeah. Um, I mean, the end goal, who, who knows? I mean, obviously, like, as a startup, you IPO, you get acquired. I mean, one, either one is, like, obviously a dream. But um, for us, I think there's just, like, a lot more to do um, hmm. in, in the industry. And so, yeah, I mentioned, like, teams and events is really interesting. Um, no one's really cracked that. And I think it's, like, fascinating, a huge market. So that's really interesting. I do think, like, other verticals, like music, it's the same problem, right? Like um, UTA, which is a huge music agency, has like five people repping a thousand music artists, right? Mm. Obviously, most of their focus is on like the Rihanna's of the world, right? And so mm. um, I think that's fascinating. It's the same business model uh, as ours. International, um, obviously, like the whole genesis of this was cross-border. Um, mm. so international is really interesting because it's not just within the UK or within Australia or within India. It's also like the um, impact of, of cross. So, for example, the Football World Cup, Soccer World, Football World Cup is coming to America in 2026, I believe. And so that's huge. So now but most of the premier players are in Europe and England. So you can imagine there's going to be a lot of UK US brands wanting to do deals with these guys as and when they come over or beforehand or whatever else. And so we're, we're in a perfect place to be doing these like cross border deals. And then when you think about cross border, you're thinking language barriers, obviously not between UK, US, but like the Philippines or China or whatever else. You've got language sure. barriers, you've got time barriers, all of that. And so it really lends itself to a platform or like model to get these deals done. How do you think your role is going to change through that? Do you think you'll just continue to do those the way you just described it, 50, 30, 20, percent um splits of where your focus is do you think your role will change as the organization sort of continues to scale yeah no i um i think it definitely will change we are in this period right now where we're hiring a lot and so and we're hiring like junior and managers at the same time and so that's why like there's a bit of that battle you're bringing in managers to to manage teams that exist already like that's that's not easy right and then or you bring them in to build a team and and so i think as we get a bit more stable in terms of like our hiring and you've got the right managers and, and whatever else i think 
that 50% reduces a lot. And I'm already feeling it quite a bit, whereas it's 50% now, I'd say like a few months ago, it was probably 80% of my time was thinking about people and processes and hiring, whereas now it's like been reduced. Um, I would think that a lot more of my time will be on strategic thinking, obviously fundraising, um, like that constant like, or investor relations, um, marketing, like outward marketing, not, not like just internal. So um, I always think that like, you basically do your job and then at some point you go, okay, I need someone to do this, right? And then you hire in and then you go on to do something else and then you hire like, you know, Holy Grail would be like, if we had a head of like special projects or special ops, who's like executing on the ideas that I'm coming up with, we're not at that point yet. So um, yeah, I think it'll constantly keep evolving. Let's, let's just talk about the, the, the fundraising you just touched on. Uh, what's that journey been like for you? Yeah. So we first raised when we got into, so we got into 500 startups in 2016. So the accelerator based out in San Francisco, um, amazing experience. And we, on the back of that, we raised about 1.5 million, I think it was, um, from a number of VCs, one in Hong Kong, one in New York, one in San Francisco, um, Oxford Angel Fund. Um, and a few other like angels and, and groups. And um, I would say as a first time tech entrepreneur who had no idea what they were doing and this, I do believe that most people go on to build a second business because you've just like got the blueprint and you're like, I need to show that I can do it again. Mm -hmm. Honestly, mm -hmm. like I made so many mistakes. I think we went really too slow um, and weren't aggressive enough. And I think that probably comes from when you, you know, when you graduate from B school and you're like, I'm going to build this business and this is my plan and I'm going to get there in three years and then I'm going to sell the company. You have a very different mindset to the way I came into it, which was like, this is a problem and I want to solve it. And I've not really thought about, as you can tell, I don't really think about what I'm doing. I just start doing it and then, you know, figure it out. Um, and so I think we grew quite small, like quite, like we grew too slowly. We were very focused on product, which does show our platform is amazing. And like, miles ahead of anyone else um, in the industry, but we could have been more aggressive. So it took us a bit of time. And then last year we raised again and we raised four and a half um, led by David Blitzer, who owns Crystal Palace and the 76ers. Um, so his family office. And we had like participation from amazing, um, can't say it yet, it's soon to be announced, but like one of the best athletes in the world, um, literally. And then also, um, like David Stern's fund, former NBA commissioner, Eric Stern, like really good participation and uh, really like blessed to have such amazing investors. Um, and so now it's like deploy, deploy, deploy. Um, I would love to, now we are being more aggressive and, you know, learn from our mistakes and I, I'd love to raise again in mm. uh, 12 to 18 months, but I care about valuation as well. So we'll see. Yeah, there is a balance to be had there, isn't there? Yeah. Pleasure. Great. So Ishveen, um, we always ask, I guess, this one question at the end of our uh, episode. So if you were to have Chai uh, with three guests, living or otherwise, who would they be and why? Cool. I did not prep for this, so I might get it like wrong and I'll beat myself up later for, for not they mentioning certain they, people. They can't all be sports related. Just oh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. So I would say I... I'm thinking about books I've read. And so um, I don't know if you've read, but Shoe Dog, which is like Phil Knight's story about Nike. Nike um, yeah. And I just think like, like, I think awesome. Like, and he's got this like, la like this uh, when he starts off and he talks about how 
you know, everyone was um, building shoes in Germany, right? Adidas and then they broke out and like whatever else. And, and this American company of, and he calls them like the misfits all came together to build this company. And when I read it, I felt like it was a little bit like our company, like, you know, <laughs> no one thinks that we're going to do this and then we kind of keep chipping away and then at some point we're just going to do it and so um i would love to meet him um and just like kind of like learn 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 um so that would be already be my business one um probably like if i could put them together the obamas um I think mm. just like so interesting and there's so much you don't see about like, I, I mean, I've read her book, um, but like, I just think it'd be fascinating to, to hear what it was like to be in the White House and be black and whatever else. And um, so that, and then maybe I could pick someone who, well, given, you know, maybe I'll just say like Eminem because, you know, I guess <laughs> I think it's me too. I don't know. It's probably someone like pop uh, just because why not have a cool story to tell. Not yeah. that much, maybe I don't know. Fair enough. No, that sounds that sounds great. Brilliant, fantastic. Well, Ishreen, thank you so much for your time today. We really enjoyed speaking to you, um, and it's uh, it's been a real pleasure. Oh, thanks. I hope I hope it was interesting. It really was. Yeah, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, we uh, will keep an eye, a close eye on uh, open sponsorship. Where can people find you if uh, they want to learn more about uh, the business? Yeah, absolutely. Um, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, sign up to the website. We, as I said, like we've just launched in the UK and um, we love telling people that, you know, you might not see the connect to sports, but if you have a marketing budget, let us tell you how it can work. So, you know, if you know anyone who has marketing budgets, like please send them our way. It'd be awesome. Cool. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ishveen, and uh, yeah, all the best for the future. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.